Welcome to Looks Like New on KGNU's It's the Economy. I'm Nathan Schneider, a professor of media studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. This is a show that asks old questions about new technology. We join you on the fourth Thursday of every month on the old-fashioned radio, or you can listen online as a podcast. Looks Like New is a production of the Media Enterprise Design Lab at CU Boulder. This month, we're exploring the question of whether blockchains could stop war crimes. These days, it seems like cryptocurrencies and the underlying blockchain technology are mostly enabling abuses, malware attacks and money laundering for rogue states and illegal transactions, things like drugs and weapons. Um, But one can also imagine how the same technology could hold powerful actors more accountable. A blockchain is essentially a, a ledger, a list of data that can't be tampered with. That sort of thing might prevent powerful actors like governments and corporations from um, using misinformation and, uh, and deceit to further their own ends, to suppress evidence of the things that they uh, have done. Now, someone who is at the forefront of exploring this possibility is Jonathan Doughton. His team is actively using decentralized technology like blockchains and and others to document and prosecute human rights abuses right now. Doughton and and his Starling Lab are also partners with with my lab, MedLab's current major project, Sacred Stacks, a cohort of communities exploring decentralized technologies together. Jonathan Doughton is founding director of the Starling Lab for Data Integrity at Stanford University and the University of Southern California. This lab prototypes tools and principles to bring historians, legal experts, and journalists into the new era of Web3. Doughton began developing ideas that led to the lab in a, in a pretty unusual way. He was a producer for the tech culture satire show on HBO, Silicon Valley. We'll get to that. But first, I want to explore some of what Starling Lab is doing, particularly around the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. Jonathan, welcome to Looks Like New. Thank you so much for for joining me today. Thanks for having me here, Nathan. Really excited for this conversation. I want to start with the context of Ukraine, which is on a lot of our minds um, today. We're seeing this war through the lens of um, of social media in many respects. Um, can you tell us a bit about what your lab is doing in the context of this war? What, what's front of mind for you right now? Well, I, I think what's front of mind is actually what's front and center for everyone, really, which is that... Um, the aggression for this unprovoked war in Ukraine has uh, been on a scale that is is really frightening. And um, miraculously, the Ukrainian government has managed to survive this initial onslaught. And what the government has seen already and started to investigate locally is that some of the attacks that have been uh, perpetrated by uh, Russian forces qualify as war crimes. So our lab has been working on using various cryptographic tools to help the work of war crimes investigators. And we began that about two years ago in Syria. So as the conflict broke out in Ukraine, we realized that we had to spring into action. And so we had a team develop a comprehensive new system 
deploy it and and we can talk today about some of our initial results but um but i'd say without getting too fancy about it what we're doing is looking at all the documentation that's coming through social media and putting it through a process where we can capture store and verify that information so it has the best chance of being made available to prosecutors in a reliable way and and then ultimately being admitted into evidence uh, through a proper procedure and, and chain of custody. Tell me a bit about why that that cryptographic part matters and 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 maybe decentralized technology and and uh, stewardship. What why does the technology matter? What, what what is possible with things that are coming out more recently that perhaps was not possible before? Well. I mean, we have now 10 years worth of experience in, in knowing what cyber war looks like um, in this current context of social media, messaging applications, all those types of platforms are have turned out to be deeply important in documenting what's going on amidst a war. Our teams, most of them got their start uh, during the Arab Spring, and and there you had Twitter and Facebook were really uh, quite young uh, in in their maturity, but they were already being seen by people on the ground as a very potent tool. And what happened was that over time, those tools that people very naively believed would be these kind of one-way tools of liberation turned out to have a dual use, which is that bad actors, so state governments, um, in the case of you know, Arab governments all over uh, who are responding to the crisis of the Arab Spring um, or um, foreign actors that were intervening like Russia, who was supporting uh, the Syrian government, they started to use these platforms to create confusion and to ultimately weaponize doubt. And the prime way that they did that was by casting doubt on the authenticity of the information that's presented through social media. So let's take an example. You've got a photograph and it shows unequivocally that there has been an attack on, let's say, a family. You could show those photographs and um, they could make their way all over the world. You could have hundreds of millions of impressions. Um, But what bad actors do is they start to put out conspiracy theories that cast doubt on the authenticity of those photos. So instead of it showing clear evidence of a war crime, they might ask questions like, well, when was this photograph actually taken? Was it taken on the day in question? Um, has it been edited? Or are the people there actors? Are they just, is there any form of manipulation of the content to make one believe that this isn't, uh, basically isn't what you're actually seeing, that it's um, a farce of some kind. Now, the people that took the photo initially, they might have all of the tools in the world that could, in their mind, prove the validity of all of this. But the reality is that once you introduce doubt, you may have some questions that you're unable to answer effectively. So for example, who took the original photo? When was it taken? Where was it taken? Those are things that are not often embedded in the photograph itself. Instead, as the photo is passed, like through multiple hands, people lose track of that information. And so that's where it's up to investigators to start to piece together what is the provenance? What is the trail that that photo may have taken from the point of it being taken on the ground to the point in which it's being seen? Our tools 
strengthen provenance by helping establish a root of trust. And we can talk about how we use various cryptographic tools to do that, but really, I think it's actually quite intuitive. What it's doing is it's locking into place a an original. And that original file then is matched with metadata around the time, the date, and the place in which the information uh, was taken. And then we lock that using cryptographic tools. And, um, and that begins a root of trust that we can use as a chain of evidence. So hopefully I haven't lost anyone here. This is like pretty obvious stuff that you would want to do amidst a very chaotic information environment where it's unclear who says what, who is a good actor, who's a bad actor, et cetera. I think it's so great that you mentioned the role of the, the Syrian civil war, which you know, so many people have been talking about this war in Ukraine as you know the first viral or social media war, but it really isn't. It's it's the first in Europe, and um, and and you know maybe not even that. Uh, and and you know recent history has has provided I think a lot of a lot of lessons that you know many people haven't been paying attention to for one reason or another. And um, but it sounds like those you know lessons from those recent conflicts have been really important for you. Can you break down an example of a particular image or source or how some of these tools are uh, enabling you to treat it differently? Yeah. Well, let, let me just um, also mention I, I think that. You're right. There's there is that perception out there, that, and I've heard this at many times where people go, "Gosh, you know, this is this is the first war that's captured on social media," and of course, like for those of us that have been working on this problem for a while, we we know that's not true. Um, and um, Andy Carvin is is somebody who I, I'd like to highlight here as somebody I really look up to, and and with this project, I have the good fortune of actually working with him. Um, Andy got started uh, working during the Arab Spring, and he. Uh, very famously uh, helped from afar. He was basically based in NPR in Washington. And he was <laughs> documenting and sourcing information from his bedroom, basically, um, you know, far away, like in, in the Middle East. And um, Andy's book called Distant Witness, like really plays out like the emotional toll that he had of trying to bring the news media, which which he was working in, into this modern age, which people had to kind of understand, like, what exactly is the value of this form of documentation? So um, now fast forward, folks like Andy are involved um, in helping us do our work. And I'm going to give you a specific example that, that he found. And, you know, what is so remarkable about it is that they not only have all of the experience in trying to help communicate this information to lawyers and to journalists, et cetera, um, but they also know the playbook around misinformation. And I think that that's what caught us all by surprise last time, right? Was that there was just the weaponization of doubt, the the use of algorithms to help cloud otherwise truthful information. Um, those are things that played out in Syria. That same strategy then moved to the United States during the 2016 election. So we've had actually a lot of time to really reflect on uh, what, what are exactly are the tactics that are used in misinformation. So I think what is new is that we are starting now with a lot more, um, a lot more strategy, and and a lot more confidence that we can meet some of these types of tricks um, uh, head on, or potentially even preempt them, which is really what we're trying to do at our lab. So let me give you a specific example. 
Uh, we've documented with the help of the DFR lab where, An- where Andy is at now, um, a series of attacks in Kharkiv at the beginning of March. And um, Kharkiv is Ukraine's second largest city. It's Think of it as kind of the Boston of uh, Ukraine. It's, it's a city filled with um, students. There's about 200,000 college students. And, and um, you know, it's, it's just one of those vibrant, remarkable young towns. Now, the Kharkiv uh, was, has, was assaulted brutally at the beginning of March by Russian forces that moved in to not only destroy military targets, but they also went well beyond that, attacking various civilian structures, including schools. So we decided to narrow down incidents looking at um, basically uh, five incidents that were attacks on on schools, including schools as, um, for, that were focused on as, uh, children as early as kindergarten. And um, one school in particular is School 17. It was attacked in, in early March, and we have a photograph that shows the, a view from inside of the school the day after the attack. It's, it's one of those shots that it really haunts you. And, and this stuff, you know, every once in a while, it catches up with you because it really has an emotional resonance. Think about what we, what we see. I'll describe it for the listeners. It's a classroom. It's filled with desks. And they're com- in complete disarray because essentially there's a giant hole that's in the side of the wall. And that hole was caused by what appears to be an artillery shell that was fired directly into the classroom. And effectively, they destroyed not only the entire wing of the school, but they basically levered the entire structure. So our photographs that we found um, on Telegram tell that story as soon as documenters had raced to the scene and and basically documented that attack. And yet, like there was a, still a lot of questions, like was that Telegram post um, the original post? Who took that photograph? You know, questions around like, can we geolocate the school? Can we understand like what other context there was around the school to prove that Russian forces were actually the ones in the area? And onwards and onwards. So that process we went through by using various cryptographic methods to lock in that telegram post so we have it properly preserved. And then we start to register various things, and we can talk about this in a minute, that help give you a sense of that the provenance and the authenticity of the file. Now, you might ask, well, surely the photograph appears to be unequivocal in what it shows, right? It's an attack on a classroom. And yet, like in social media, just the same, there were also allegations that uh, by pro-Russian accounts that this was staged. And they started to offer various conspiracy theories, um, including um, preventing their own photos that show Ukrainian forces ostensibly inside of a gymnasium inside of that school. The problem with that, of course, is that that narrative was completely fabricated. There was no evidence to, to corroborate it. Plus, the allegations were quite scattershot because the photos that they provided of, let's say, the Ukrainian forces that were supposedly in that building, um, they were also used to, um, uh, it, to be, they were claimed to be in various other structures at the same time as well. So basically, those accounts couldn't really keep their facts straight. So all of that evidence base the original Telegram post, the uh, the surrounding contextual information, the misinformation, all of that goes into a package. And what we do is we start to create a chain of custody where think of it like an investigator would take a, 
a piece of evidence from a crime scene and put it in one of those plastic tamper-proof bags. So that's our first step is we basically seal that information in and we use various cryptographic methods, including decentralized ledgers that can help us create basically a fingerprint of the information so that we know what the original status of it was. And then from there, we have a chain of custody that ensures that as the information moves along a process of analysis and finally ending up with prosecutors and then in front of a judge, that we essentially have a log as to who has that information. And that gives us more confidence that the information hasn't been tampered with. It's essentially audited by these cryptographic tools, um, the same way that you have an evidence locker that has an individual in a basement of a police station that hands out evidence to investigators. We're basically doing the same thing for websites, telegram posts, social media, et cetera, et cetera, and, and, and bringing that, those best practices of evidence gathering into the 21st century. So people are, you know, largely familiar with those decentralized ledgers that you were talking about in terms of blockchains, right? Cryptocurrencies. It's the it's the similar sort of technology, if I'm hearing you right. Um, can you explain to somebody who might be more familiar with, you know, Bitcoin as a currency or something like that, how that kind of tool is useful in the context of um, documenting potential war crimes? Sure. So I think the very first thing we do is we need to register that fingerprint, right? So we know what the original file is, so we get a hash of it. And if your audience, you know, I'm assuming they have some technical knowledge if they know what Bitcoin is. So essentially, think of the hash as a one-way algorithm that provides us a unique number that identifies the contents of the file. So in this case, it's a web archive, and now we have a hash of that. And um, we use, in this case, a CID, which is a self-parsing hash, but it essentially, for all intended purposes, is a, is a robust collision-resistant hash. Now, with that, what we do is we need to store that information somewhere. So we put it on a distributed ledger. And in our case, we actually register that in seven different distributed ledgers so that we have basically a, a decentralized approach, right? We're using multiple protocols. And now here's the kicker. What's interesting about that process is that we actually also use Bitcoin itself. So not just L1 hashes like Ethereum or Avalanche or um, uh, Litecoin and ICN, like we, we have a whole array of those. But actually with Bitcoin, what we do is we use that um, using a, uh, an open timestamp protocol to establish the time and date of our ceiling relative to the Bitcoin ledger. So it becomes in a, in a way like a kind of like the atomic clock an independent reference of time that we use to establish uh, essentially when we've done this ceiling. So this is pretty cool stuff because what we're doing is we're creating a registration framework that works across multiple protocols and that establishes our root of trust, right? We have the original. From there, we're moving beyond L1 protocols into things that you might think of as crypto utilities. So Filecoin, storage, a couple of others that we've been working on. They are um, essentially using cryptography to create a form of storage that you might think of as called the block cloud. And on the block cloud, what you do is you upload the information the same way you would to a normal cloud, but instead of it being in one location or with one organization, you actually spread it out onto multiple sites. And as you do that, you use cryptography to do these ongoing audits to make sure that none of the information has been manipulated. So. We've registered the information, we've stored it. And now finally, the last step is that you have to have examiners 
look at the information and forensic analysts or lawyers or um, you know, law enforcement agencies, they can all look at that information and then they can provide their own attestations to the validity of it. So therefore, what we do is we take, to, to meet those requirements, we take a, um, we generate a custody NFT. So the same crazy technology that's being used for strange art is now actually being used to authenticate this collection of evidence. And then we issue from those custody tokens, we issue then access NFTs so that any person that touches the data set and examines it, they can have basically a cryptographic record that they've looked at this. So that gives you a wide range of things. Hopefully everyone's been able to keep up with me, but it it follows that intuitive flow that I described, which is that we need to make sure that cryptography at each step as you capture, store, and verify the information can be used to, per, to essentially store these records of authenticity. You're listening to Looks Like New, a show that asks old questions about new tech. Stick with us and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio. We've been speaking with Jonathan Doten about uh, whether blockchains can stop war crimes. Jonathan, we've just gone through a lot of, um, you know, kind of detailed uh, 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 exploration of what it looks like to uh, build tech that uh, can verify and and um, uh, and and establish these uh, these pieces of documentation of, of you know, really horrendous crimes uh, such as what's going on in Ukraine and and, and much more. Um, but uh, you know, th- an interesting part of your biography and leading to this project is your role as a producer of the show Silicon Valley, uh, a satire uh, of the very tech culture that you participate in. Uh, can you tell us a bit about how you ended up? in that role and what what that role looked like, what you were doing on the show? Well, yeah, there was certainly a, a quite a journey from an HBO half-hour comedy uh, to working on war crimes. Um, but actually, for me, it's coming full circle. So um, a bit about my background, I, I my very first job actually out of um, college was working for the United Nations in Sarajevo. And so I really got a front row seat into looking at uh, issues around organized crime, corruption and war crimes. And that's, although I ended up not pursuing a, a career in international relations uh, accountability, um, that work really stuck with me. And um, you know, fast forward years later, I've been working at the intersection of media and technology for most of my career, sometimes as a founder, sometimes as an investor. And um, the HBO, uh, the team that was producing the show, Silicon Valley, they wanted to get some advice on on how to make the show authentic 
And so they asked me to stop by for some lunch to give them some tips. And over time, I, I realized this was like probably one of the most extraordinary things I'd ever done. I was basically paid to sit down with a bunch of the funniest people I've ever met in my whole entire life and um, just talk and start to reason through like all the crazy things that had happened in my life uh, working in startups. And we found that that uh, synergy of my, my knowledge of working in the entertainment industry for many years and my knowledge in tech proved to be really helpful. I, w- I essentially emerged as like an ambassador for the show, seeking out new technologies, new voices, and trying to bring that into the writing room and developing plot and character that, that would really pass muster with the Silicon Valley crowd. Um, I was kind of the, the authenticity guy is one way to think about it. And, um, you know, we ended up, if, without giving away too much, if you haven't seen the show, we pretty much bet the plot of the series on this idea that our protagonist would create something we called the new internet. And when we started on that journey, it was it seemed in, in inspired to think about how we might take the, nar- the largest network of knowledge that we have in the world and try to innovate on it. And that's that's really what the intention was. But as the seasons rolled on and on, we realized that the problems of today's internet were insane, right? Like I mean, we were talking about a Russian invasion, um, you know, using the tools of social media, right? Effectively, um, you we spoke about the role of these companies like Facebook and Google and Apple and Amazon that have emerged as the most valuable companies in the world. So the table stakes of our discussion on a comedy were actually really high. And arguably in our last season, we might've had the more political show than, than Veep, right? Because we were talking about such fundamental issues that were affecting our politics and our society. So that was a pretty white knuckle experience and creating this as a fictitious plot for a show, but it really resonated with me. And um, as part of my research, I, I started meeting people in the community. And so um, someone, Nathan, who I know uh, you and I both really treasure is um, Brewster Kale at the Internet Archive. And he introduced me to this whole world of the decentralized web um, that had coalesced around uh, his organization. And, and it really changed my life because I realized that this tech wasn't just something that was appropriate for us to kind of lampoon on a TV show. Um, I got excited to see how it might actually shape our future and specifically how it might shape the future of uh, human rights organizations. So I got a chance to basically come to full circle to the beginning of my career. And we created this lab at Stanford called the Starling Lab that looks at how Web3 technologies can affect history, law, and journalism. And that's what I've been doing for the last four years. Well, it's, it's neat to hear about that role of um, Brewster Kale. I mean, it, first of all, the you know, that show is such a powerful, you know, critique and engagement with, with Silicon Valley and its habits and ways of speaking and, and ideals and aspirations. And, um, uh, and, and, uh, you know, and, and, and at the same time, you know, reveals in such kind of stark, um, drama, the, the, um, you know, the deep problems and, 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 uh, uh, Brewster is someone who, you know, I think has all along for many years sought to 
um, sought to create a, a kind of parallel narrative. You know, even while he was creating a, a startup, a web analytics company, he was building the Internet Archive using its data. Um, and similarly, today, uh, the language of Web3 is used a lot around decentralized technology. Well, for a few years now, he and, and the people around the Internet Archive have um, have had another term, um, D-Web, which is, you know, interesting in, in, you know, I think in that it doesn't focus on the technology as kind of an end in itself, but focuses on a set of principles. It's kind of organized around principles rather than, rather than a particular tech stack. Um, are, are there ways in which having been so deeply involved in, in creating that caricature of Silicon Valley in the show has shaped, you know, how you're building this organization um, this lab at a university, not a venture-backed startup. Um, you know, what is it that you've taken from that from that critique um, in building? You know, this next, uh, you know, this latest engagement with with emerging technology. A lot, actually. Uh, if you've seen the show, you'll know that probably the biggest object of our satire was the insincerity of Silicon Valley, and when people claim that. You know, they're trying to make the world a better place or not be evil or, um, you know, oh, we're only doing this because we actually want to advance humanity. Um, obviously, that's somewhat of a ruse. Um, yeah, revolutionize everything. <laughs> yep. Yep. That kind of hyperbolic idea that you have these kind of man-child founders uh, that happen to be white and male predominantly, you know, sitting there and kind of telling the rest of us, like, what we should really be doing. Oh, and by the way, also when they screw up, like, they also kind of... Um, also explain to us um, what you know we can do to fix all of this. Um, you know, so that echo chamber and the insincerity around that was something that was it was so obvious to us. It was flawed. Um, I don't think any of us knew when we were writing the show at the beginning, at least, that it would just fall in on itself the way it has. I mean, the tech lash, as we've lived through it for the last, I guess, five years thereabouts, um, you know, has been profound. Right? There's obviously every person knows like what the risks are at this point with that type of insincerity. Because if you believe someone like Zuckerberg and saying, oh, we're only making this technology so you can have friends all over the world and you could go and you know topple dictators and do all these wondrous things, um, obviously that belies like some of the really difficult and maybe even intractable problems with, first of all, centralizing so much power in one company. And secondly, their privacy policies, right? And what are the values that animate like their um, their business decisions? And um, we have found time and again that those values might not be things that actually everyone shares, or perhaps more importantly, um, they're not just about making the world a better place, <laughs> right? They're about making money, and you know the signals and the incentives and all the rest of it like are very clear as to why Facebook, as a publicly traded company, needs to follow that playbook. Um, and in fact, you would, you could argue that they're, they're doing kind of quote unquote, the right thing by their investors. However, um, they're cloaking themselves in a broader appeal around humanitarianism. And I think they realized all belatedly that they actually couldn't do that alone. They couldn't just use the rhetoric of making the world a better place. They had to reconcile like the reality that people are going to do horrible things with their technology and that they needed to be vigilant. They needed to have a set of principles that um, could moderate content and um, that just simply by democratizing or providing tech alone, that doesn't actually create the world that we want. 
In fact, it might, it might be the, the fastest way to create the world that we don't want. So yeah, I'd say that the, the lab really is guided by, um, that experience, right? As I, 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 at least when I started, you know, especially when we're making these videos explaining what we do, I was trying to think of myself to be like, okay, how could I make the case for what we're doing with sincerity and that I wouldn't have 10 of my writing friends from the show call me up and be like, you're ridiculous. <laughs> you're being insincere. So I, I, you know, I had at least, you know, their ire, I guess, in my mind. Um, at the same time, the university was a great place to decamp. Um, the Stanford and USC, where our lab is based, um, they have rich traditions about thinking about human rights, specifically uh, the USC Shoah Foundation, which is where um, we got a lot of our work started, um, deals with matters around uh, preserving the testimony of the survivors of genocide. So things got serious very quickly, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, but in any event, yeah, I'd, I'd say the the contrast was was important. And what what did you learn then from looking at these at documentation from the Holocaust? I mean, it seems like that's where the organization that you know where the lab got got um, got started. Um, what can people looking to um, uh, to to enable human rights and justice today learn from? Um, how the Holocaust was documented. Well, uh, to explain um, to the listeners here, you know, our our lab when it got started, we needed a project, and so the very first project we took on was using cryptographic tools and decentralized tools to help us take the USC Shoah Foundation's visual history archive, and that archive has fifty five thousand testimonies of the survivors of genocide. Um, it, it got its start by documenting the Holocaust. It then expanded to nine additional uh, genocide collections, um, including contemporary cases in, in Myanmar. So um, that data set was obviously vulnerable. And our idea was, could we take it, authenticate it, so we knew what the original was, and then chop it up into small pieces and then spread it as far and as wide as possible so that it would be decentralized in its storage, and then use cryptographic proofs to prove that those small shards could retain their integrity. So that even if I had a copy of the Shoah Foundation's archive, let's say on my mobile phone, a small piece of it, um, that I couldn't necessarily change that without someone knowing about it. Um, it was a kind of a beautiful idea if you think about it, right? It's that it means that you have this collective history and we want people to have, who are aligned with the values of never forget, to use something as simple as their mobile phone as a way of storing that information. So they, they too could provide some storage capability. And that in its heart is actually a very similar type of philosophy to what the D-Web or the you know, Web3 types of technologies are trying to do, is they're trying to empower individual users to use technology and cryptography to help distribute responsibilities, uh, which in this case, we were the responsibility was to, to never forget, right? To protect this information. And I think what it impressed upon me was that really there are important conversations that we all need to have around what, what are our values that we bring to creating this type of technology. Um, as Larry Lessig uh, famously said, you know, you have code, which is computer code, which is basically a set of instructions that go to a processor, 
But then you also have things like civic codes and moral codes. All of those things come together to create software and, and technical solutions. You have to think about code in, in all sorts of ways. And um, so I, th I think, Nathan, I, you know, I credit you that you, you, you think a lot about these matters and, and understand that we need to really come together as a society or even individual communities, provoke those discussions, and then we can design technology from those values, not the other way around. Once again, you're listening to Looks Like New, a show that asks old questions about new tech. Stick with us and we'll be back in just a minute. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio. We're speaking today with Jonathan Doten from the Sterling Lab at Stanford University and uh, USC. We're talking about the whether blockchains can be used to stop war crimes and um, and other human rights violations. Jonathan, uh, these days Web three is better known for scams and cybercrime and things like that than human rights protection. Um, what do you think it would take to get um, this technology associated differently, used more for things like protecting human rights and, and less for kind of scams and, and, uh, 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 and cybercrime? So when we launched this project specifically on Ukraine, um, we needed a, a name because we were bringing together a lot of players and um, needed a banner to kind of march under. And so we called it Project Dokaz which means uh, in Ukrainian, dokaz means proof. So I, I think to answer your question, what is going to change people's minds about this technology is real proof that this tech can be used for good and that you have a form of responsible innovation where people can um, think about the values, as I talked about in our last segment, and, and really use that to guide our uh, technology roadmap. So um, the Starling Lab, in, in, in launching this project with our partners at the Atlantic Council and at Hala Systems, has been focused on providing tangible examples of how this actually works. Not theoretical white papers, not promises that are sold to VCs. This is very sober and clear implementation of the technology. Um, it's open source so that we can be held to account and we can have a community contribute. Um, and so as an example of what we've we've done is is kind of real hard um, proof of the the success of this type of solution. Um, we submitted last week a hundred plus page dossier to the International Criminal Court that outlines attacks on School Seventeen that I described earlier, as well as five other schools. And we use our entire framework and all the technologies to actually hand to the ICC not only this legal dossier, so that's using their uh, established methods of legal presentation of evidence, but then also a, an electronic folder that included links back to the decentralized web so people could check out all the registrations of the information, which I described, um, and also included a, a, an NFT. So now the ICC has a custody NFT of this information and access NFTs as well as they seek to access it. And so that we think is is a you know meant to really 
explain to them in a very tangible way our methodology and then provide clear proof as a part of all of that, that uh, around war crimes that, that we have been investigating. So that we hope will catalyze um, their deeper understanding of the tech. And, um, and also I, I should mention um, catalyze uh, awareness and further investigation around crimes against children, uh, which are often uh, under investigated and under prosecuted. So, so we think of our work as, you know, we're innovating both with um, the law and also with technology at the same time. And how prepared are institutions like the International Criminal Court for um, ingesting this kind of stuff? I mean, my, my colleague Sandra Rostovska, who's been on the show before, you know, has has explored how the ICC has struggled, for instance, with with video evidence, um, just you know, quote unquote normal. Uh, digital video, um, no blockchains and anything else like that involved. Um, were did they have a, 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 an address to receive that NFT? Were they? Um, are these institutions um, uh, eager to do that kind of learning? Do they see the value in this? So the ICC in particular has stated for years and years that it um, not only is willing to make the time to understand these types of technologies, but it sees it as a strategic priority. So that's pretty clear uh, that you know, this type of engagement is not uh, the exception. It, it actually is part of their normal process of reaching out to civil society and understanding you know, what, what lessons they can hold. And, and really that decision I think was driven by an awareness that the courts are not gonna be uh, equipped to actually drive technical innovation. That, that's obviously going to happen with civil society and private companies. And so what they need are people that are willing to create bridges uh, for them to understand the tech and for the ICC, of course, to form its own independent um, position on, on the viability of that tech. Um, I, I think that, that the viability of this all of this technology rests on not only it actually working, so on a technical level, um, but also that it can be translated into um, concrete precedences, uh, precedents that can actually be understandable by judges who might be coming from a completely different era of technology. Um, and so, you know, we we really work hard at providing analogies and explainers um, so people can understand that there's a history here. To this technology, it's not. It, it, it appears to be new, but Nathan, what's the name of your show again? Looks like new. <laughs> yeah, looks like new. Well, yeah. So you know, in this case, like actually, that's really what we're doing, right? Is that we're saying a cryptographic hash is not a new piece of technology, right? That the the code and the and the methods around that was they were basically developed like in earnest in the early '60s, right? And in fact, anyone who uses the internet today actually interacts with hashes all the time. And I'm not talking about hashtags that you see on Twitter. I'm talking about how is your password stored and how is it authenticated when you're logging into something. In the background, you're using a hash to do that. So um, we, we, we try to draw those analogies so people can start to build confidence that, yes, there are new things that are going on here, but they are in a, in a lineage right? That, that come from a whole set of steps to get us here. Um, and if you follow those steps, carefully, and if we can break it down in an easy to understand way, you can have an appreciation for for why this is such a powerful moment, because we really do need new tools to confront the challenges of cyber war. Um, and that 
I, I think every re, um, listener here can can really appreciate that they may have come into their own um, interaction with misinformation and, and wondered like, how do I know if this tweet is true, or how do I know if this photo hasn't been doctored? Um, in an era that's upon us with deep fakes becoming more normal and more persuasive, um, we're going to need extra help. And so this is our way of helping the courts uh, quickly catch up. You, you mentioned earlier a, a technical roadmap that that might emerge if people recognize the potential uh, of these tools. How might you know blockchain technologies and, and other decentralized tools, um, other cryptographic tools be um, designed differently if these kinds of applications were at the fore instead of, or maybe alongside, for instance, the financial uh, applications that have tended to uh, uh, to dominate uh, this this, this emerging realm? I mean, the first thing that they can do is something pretty intuitive, which is that the tools can establish the origin of content and its, its original state which is really important, especially in war crimes where it takes on average, you know, 10 to 20 years to really do a proper cycle of accountability. So we need to lock things down and get that a, a fingerprint as we think about it, digital fingerprint. Um, the second is that this type of technology can be used to also preserve the documents themselves. So that is really important because as information goes down, it's no longer available online. Um, or it might, you know, there might be hacks or other forms of vulnerabilities. Um, we obviously need to think about long-term preservation, and that requires essentially some form of distributed storage. That it's not just all in one place. That just stands to good reason, right? And then the last thing the technology can do is it can help um, protect the identity of both the original sources and also the investigators that are doing this examination. So even as things are distributed and we're working across you know, thousands of Telegram accounts or working on public websites, et cetera, we can use cryptography to help start to lock down information, but then also where necessary, protect the identity of the individuals who've contributed to this accountability effort. And that of course is a real and present danger, right? For, for many people in Ukraine. So um, all of those issues weigh very heavily on us and they, they form first the ethic that, that drives our decision-making, and then from there, um, a technology roadmap. What about policy? I, you know, I was, I was recently at the, uh, you know, we were both at the, the Consensus Conference, and which is a, a big kind of crypto blockchain conference, and it was in Austin this year. Uh, and one of the things that was front of mind for so many people there, a lot of the uh, a lot of the the major sessions were about regulation and the coming of um, some clarification in U.S. law and 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 in some other places. Um, a lot of that is focused on again financial applications. Is are these tokens going to be securities or are they going to be commodities or currencies? Um, how will the law see them? Are there um, as as these regulatory um, uh, uh, guardrails are being established. Um, are there any considerations that you think are particularly important to make sure that these tools can be used for um, protecting human rights? Let me say that I think it's important to distinguish between um, a lot of the regulatory policy that's oriented around financial transactions. And I, and I want to say that although I have um, views on that and, and the lab engages on those efforts, um, 
let's leave those aside for a minute um, because I um, issues around fraud, issues around protecting investors, et cetera, they are super important. And I don't think I have time to get into all the, all the ways we need to think about it. But maybe I can um, look instead to something that's at a higher level. When you think about Web3 or the D-Web, financial tools are just one part of the larger opportunity. And what we're seeing is that there's this next generation of the internet, which is taking shape in front of our eyes. And that's going to happen whether or not the U.S. regulates this or not. Um, the truth is that people have started to create these technologies as a, as a response to the inequality that exists within um, the current platforms. They basically want to decentralize power so that Twitter and Facebook and you know, Google, et cetera, that they don't have such outsized power. And so that, that activity is ongoing. And now the question becomes... How, how can we think about joining those projects with communities that have values that we can all agree with? I think that right now, there's a lot of what's coming out is that there's rightful questions around the integrity and the values of the early uh, Web3 entrepreneurs. And people are starting to ask, like, how sincere are you about protecting human rights? Or are you just trying to get rich? In some cases, many of these entrepreneurs are, are actually offering up a vision that is a purely libertarian capitalist project that says, we just want to get rich as, as fast as possible, and so should you, and come buy in. Um, those are one set of values. I think that the larger opportunity with um, talking about the D-Web and Web3 is that we can really think about um, how do we want to share information, and how do we want to do that with authenticity and security, and those are existential questions for our time. And if we don't proactively, as a, as a set of you know, every citizen, um, engage in that discussion, then someone else is going to make that decision for us. Um, and I'll tell you that what keeps me up at night is that I think the internet as we know it is being undone before our very eyes. Um, and that's not by the Facebooks and the Googles of the world. This is being done um, by this process of forcing Russia off of the Western internet. And Russia has held drills for years to figure out how they can disengage from the internet in the event of what they call the security incident, which obviously in this case, that's how they see the war in Ukraine as a threat to them. So they are disengaging because of their own choices. And then also Western companies through sanctions have started to leave. And so a lot of the internet infrastructure that was set up there is, is being dismantled or, or abandoned. And what that means is that now the internet is going to be splintered and you will have a Western internet, which has a certain set of values about the freedom of information, freedom of access. And that will be contrasted with the Chinese version of the internet. And now soon this uh, Russian version of the internet. And if you, think of web three as now part of that conversation, I think you're getting really to the heart of what really matters because it's not just about financial inclusion and, and all the, the crazy things that have gone on with the cryptocurrency markets. Um, this is actually about a new architecture for the internet and how can we ensure that it can will remain resilient to censorship, that it can continue to promote um, access to knowledge 
and that it can overcome the challenges of misinformation. And that, that seems like to me a bipartisan issue. It is also one that uh, needs engagement from everybody, not just uh, a bunch of crypto bros uh, who we all love to throw darts at. So on the, on that point about everybody, you know, that a project that, you know, my lab's doing that, uh, that you and Starling lab have been, have been partnering uh, with us on this, uh, this sacred stacks, which is a cohort of communities that are not primarily techies, uh, exploring some of these, um, uh, decentralized web opportunities and, and, uh, and technologies from the perspective of this kind of work that you've been doing, um, where, the documentation uh, you're helping to create relies on people who are there um, on the ground, who may not have the kinds of technical skills that you and your your lab have. You know, with with them in mind, uh, what do you know the rest of us need to know uh, about this technology so that we can participate in it? Not just from the perspective of investing in the latest cryptocurrency fad, but uh, from the perspective of you know, helping to document document abuses that are happening in our backyards, uh, 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 becoming you know human rights protectors uh, uh, from wherever we are. What do we need to know? Well, I mean, the first thing is that we are trying to make this as easy as possible to use. So we're trying to meet the folks on the ground where they're at with the tools that they have. So although we have very complicated backend systems, the front of it, it's as simple as sending a, a signal message right from the field um, the when we do web scraping of let's say a telegram post or a website um, we're using an extension that can be loaded in any browser so these are things that should not be difficult to use on the front end and then get obviously much more complicated and enriched uh, on the back end so um, I would say the first thing you um, you need to know is to not be afraid that actually a lot of this stuff is is within grasp um, of your understanding and, and you can even touch it yourself. So, um, that's, I think the first thing, um, the second is, um, getting a sense of your values is really important. So I would urge people to start to understand, like, how do you feel about end-to-end -end encryption as an example, read up on that and understand like why that technology is, uh, potentially really critical to protecting human rights. Um, we need allies who understand, uh, what that vigorous debate is, because that's by no means a done deal, right? Like we could have all the tech in the world set up, but if a government can hack into an end-to-end -end encrypted system, um, then you know there there could be a lot of problems with the integrity of information. So I think those are things that anybody can do. Um, and the last is to engage with the the Web three world, um, read up on it, and start to help open up this new chapter of dialogue to, to think about, well, what, are, what is the type of internet that we want to have? And could potentially these tools be really helpful in helping democratize and um, create shared value um, to, the, to the new um, solutions that are emerging? And um, I know that sounds kind of soft, but actually I think it's so critical because right now what's happening, there's such a, a backlash against this whole world and people I think are really at risk of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So without giving short rift to any of the criticisms, I think we can also get away from the schadenfreude and nihilism and get into a more constructive discussion around what is this next generation of the internet. And um, that conversation with just your peers and others um, can make actually a huge difference as to how this technology is going to evolve. 
specific to Ukraine, I would suggest that people seek out um, organizations like Ukraine DAO, which has done really brave and incredible work. We're, we're very proud to support them um, with their efforts, and they've been invaluable partners to us as we document uh, work in, in Ukraine. And finally, uh, keep up the pressure on our elected officials because this very soon we're going to start to see this this war turn into an ugly phase in which essentially it becomes a burden. Uh, refugees will be not no longer welcomed with open arms, but there will be undoubtedly um, a, a, a rising tide of hatred against them in Europe and elsewhere as the burden becomes too much for governments to handle, and these individuals can become scapegoats. Um, War crimes start to fade as people think pragmatically about the end of war, but they can't be forgotten. We need transitional justice to help rebuild um, whatever uh, uh, peace agreement um, is going to lay out for the rebuilding of Ukraine. So um, that, I think, takes continued engagement here. And um, hopefully, Nathan, I've answered your question. It's <laughs> There's so much to do. Well, it's the second time today I've heard uh, the baby and the bathwater metaphor around um, crypto and Web3 and all this stuff. Um, you know, uh, there there is this kind of subset of really exciting, uh, inspiring stuff. And then there's this great sea of, of um, you know, of, of, you know, very dangerous stuff as well that's that's happening in this moment. And, you know, I, I, I wish maybe we could not just keep the baby in the bathwater, but have the baby, you know, splash the bathwater bath a bit more, <laughs> you know, um, turn it into something else. I don't know what, but you've given us a lot to work with. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Thank you for, for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. We've been speaking with Jonathan Doten about uh, whether blockchains can stop war crimes. Find out uh, more about Jonathan's work at uh, the Starling Lab uh, for Data Integrity at Stanford University and USC. A lot of great resources uh, on their website as well about uh, about Web3 and, and uh, blockchains and the decentralized web more generally. I'm Nathan Schneider, a professor of media studies at CU Boulder. Looks Like New is a production of CU's Media Enterprise Design Lab. You can find out more about our work at colorado.edu lab medlab. If you've liked what you heard, as always, please spread the word about the show and leave a review if you like uh, where you get your podcasts. I'd also love to hear from you uh, with comments and guest ideas. You can reach us at uh, medlab at colorado.edu. I hope you'll join us next month. Thanks so much for being here.